of the podcast with who? Me, Patrick Attaway. And this is my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, my own writing, as we get into some more chapters of Demise of the Trinity. And I've looked at the chapters that I have marked for this episode, and it looks like I might even get to read three today. No promises are being made, but this Murray chapter is really quick. And then this Arthur chapter doesn't seem to go on for very long. And then we have Birch. Let's see how long. This one's a little longer. But then maybe I'll make it even make it into Lilith because that's a very short chapter. And that means we'll be done with part one today. Do you think I can do it? I don't know. I don't want to make any promises, promises. So how have you been doing this week? Oh, it's been a killer, hasn't it? My birthday's coming up. It's almost October. It's September 30th as I'm recording this. Is there a September 31st? I don't know. It it seems like uh, something that I would know since I'm supposed to be the smartest guy on the planet. And you're listening to me because of that, right? Right. If you hear any background noise, it's my wife watching Vampire Diaries in the living room because it's fall. And pretty soon she's going to be listening. Ooh, we're going to be listening to Gilmore Girls because she'll be in the other room watching that. Remember that last year when my wife was always watching Gilmore Girls very loudly in the living room? And we had to listen to Carol King and all that other bullshit? Yeah. I swear, the soundtrack... I know that Carol King doesn't do the soundtrack outside of the theme song, but the soundtrack... All the acoustic guitar stuff in the la-dee-la-la, it is awful. It sounds like they, whoever created the show just gave her best friend who knows like three chords on the guitar the opportunity to record the soundtrack. That's exactly what it sounds like. Anyway, uh, I'm done bitching. I have a lot to bitch about as always, but you know, that's not why you come here. And maybe if you do, you should let me know. I, I don't know why the fuck you listen to this. I've been doing this for over 200 episodes now. I still don't know why people listen. Uh, maybe I'm really charming. I doubt that. However, uh, let's just get into Murray's chapter. Listen, I did this for you. Okay, I'm doing... Uh, this is not necessarily fun for me. I mean, it's great because I have you know, kind of a future-proof way of doing the podcast where I have a set amount of episodes that I can cover material on. I don't have to scramble to figure out, what am I going to do this week? What happened last week? Previously on Demise of the Trinity. Um, It was Birch, and he was confronting Freudland after losing Veronica. Only he thought Veronica's name was Vicky. So... Let's get into Murr's chapter. What could what what could be taking place here, I wonder? You tell me. All right. I'll take the child. You subdue that broken man out there. Lucifer lifts Alan in his arms as my grandson reaches for me and smiles as our eyes meet. Each day I wondered if Veronica could ever love him. But now I may never get to raise him as I planned. Ken Price, despite walking with a cane, is still in the Trinity. So he's a danger to us as long as he carries a gun. I let 
Alan's little hand grasps my pinky before Lucifer vanishes. And I'm finally going to end what I began when I fucked Allison. I want to... You have no. If you haven't read this before, you have no idea what's going on. Um, Ken is at the door, and he's come there for vengeance. But um, Murray and Ken have a bit more of a relationship than even people who've read Price of the Trinity realize, because Ken talks about how Murray was like a second father figure to him growing up, and the. The thing was is that since Ken was supposed to be part of Satan's plot to help end humanity, um, Murray was kind of training him in the way that Lucifer trained Murray growing up. And that relationship is severed when Ken tries to kill Charles Price. Because then Lucifer realizes... If he's willing to kill his own father, he's going to kill the rest of us. Ken beats on the front door with his cane, yet he could shoot through a window and take me out. Instead, he wants to play with me. And I'm through with his intimidation tactics. I know that I possess power, which Lucifer never explained, but I produce fire when I concentrate. When in negotiations, I mentally persuade people toward my point of view. But I have never needed more than my physical training and a firearm to take someone out. With Ken, I can't even knock him unconscious with a baseball bat. Extending my hands, closing my eyes, I visualize forcing the door off its hinges and tossing Ken onto the front lawn. As he keeps taunting me with his knocks, I concentrate and feel a force growing through my muscles. For some reason, I push with my feet, and I run at the door. When I look, a chunk of the wall follows with the door, and Price, as he collapses with the wood shattered, shattering on top of him. What's happening here is kind of a manifestation of what happened earlier in the book with him and Allison, where he was able to make that trailer explode. And Murray later kind of shows us what he's capable of in New York when he's trying to protect Alan from Birch. But right now, this is something that he's never had to really rely on before. As he said, he's never needed more. Because when he's not dealing with the Trinity, there's only three of them after all. And, you know, Ken isn't the one interfering with most of his business practices. He doesn't really need to uses devil powers on anybody. So he's conjuring up a piece of himself that he's not even truly fully aware of, truly fully aware of. You know, this is why I'm a writer, so great with words. <sighs> My arms tingle and flex as if I'm ready to collapse in Ken's face. Jumping from the stairwell, I rush over to him as he's pushing chunks of the door and wall from his body and kick the pistol from his hand. Bearing down my weight onto his chest, I begin punching the little asshole as, he em as embers of fire strike from his face with each blow. See, we're seeing just a glimpse of Murray's power here. As he hits Ken 
It's like little sparks, sort of like you ever have a dead lighter. When I was a kid, I had a toy gun that a kid gave to me at a party, and it was a lighter, but it it didn't have fuel or something in it, and so it would spark when you would pull the trigger, but no flame would come out of it. And it was pretty cool. I had it for a while. I don't know what happened to it. I had a bunch of toy guns growing up, which is, I don't even think, you know, there's an aisle for Nerf guns and Target, but I don't know if kids still play with guns anymore. That's not something that I'm aware of. I feared Price because he wasn't a normal human, yet he's handicapped like one now. If Birch possessed the strength I do, Ken would be floating in a river rather than losing consciousness on my grass. But I don't fault Birch. He's going to kill this man for me, and then I might persuade him to help us further. This is the first time a figurehead helped Lucifer, although indirectly. Grasping. That is not true, by the way. I'm just going to put that on the record. Grasping Ken's broken ankle, I drag him through the yard and inside the living room. Didn't think I'd need that front door anymore, so there's a hole there. But we're half a mile from the nearest neighbor. Um, I I don't... See, this is supposed to be taking place at the house that Murray grew up in. And I don't know that that's entirely true unless everyone in the neighborhood moved away, which is possible. But when I wrote this, maybe I, I thought Murray was in a safe house somewhere, but that's obviously not stated here. He's just in the only place he could be, which is either the apartment that he that is mentioned in Price of the Trinity which the location of that is unknown for protection reasons. And then we have Walter Grown's house, which is where this is taking place. You don't care about this. I'm just thinking out loud, people. Setting him in a kitchen chair, I grab what's nearby. Duct tape. Why didn't I just... Why did I have to make a whole thing about this? Setting him in a kitchen chair, I grab what's nearby, colon, a duct tape. Why don't I just say I grab duct tape? See, this isn't something... I'm not saying that it's bad writing, but I, I, I wouldn't do this now. And this is the thing. Like, my memories of writing this are scattered because I wrote all the chapters out of order for the most part. The only thing that was written in order was the second half of this novel... And that was when I rewrote it in, in 2019. After securing his arms and legs, I find some cord I bought at Lowe's under the kitchen sink. It's convenient that he has all these things, right? This fucker's a danger to me, so I can't risk him breaking through some duct tape. And when I look at his pale face, the mask he wore to frighten anyone he met, I wonder how it broke into a pussy's wail when Birch went after him. My muscles go limp once I sit down and pull out my phone. Birch may not love me for what happened between Monsoon and him, but he'll appreciate a chance to end this with Ken. Where are you? He answers. Mount Zion, I say. I have Ken here for you. Figured you'd like to see him. Text me the address. He hangs up.
When I hired Birch, I didn't expect him to be a good thief. Since Monsoon found me a member of the Trinity, I paid her a fee and wanted to keep him a secret from Freudland. If Freudland bought him off before me, I wouldn't be alive. See, this is the thing. Birch worked for both Freudland and Murray, but Murray was unaware of it because, for one thing, Murray is unaware that Freudland is Lucifer's creation. Lucifer keeps them ignorant of one another outside of being enemies for a reason. But Birch learned through trial and error, and I gained more intel on Fonda than I expected. Knowing Birch, he probably approached Freudland about Price, but I can't fathom what Freudland told him. I don't expect him to walk out of here as my best friend, though I hope maintaining Price will convince him to let me leave with Alan. I need to relocate and raise my grandson because Alan deserves a real life outside of Lucifer's guidance. I see a Mercedes like Walter drove in the 80s pull up the drive. Ken's still unconscious, though I'm surprised he hasn't woken up to monologue about how he'll be my reckoning. Birch walks in the front room without knocking and doesn't look at me as I try to greet him. Where's he going to knock, Murray? He looks at Price, strapped to the chair, studying the situation, and turns to me with a pistol drawn. You should have left him here, Birch cocks the gun. I'm ashamed of myself, you know. Birch, I say. I held Price here for you. I've always stood behind you. I don't know what someone told you, Freudland. Birch nods. You know, I'm not really a religious person, but when someone shows me proof that God exists, I listen. He's here to take down Central Network. I'm going to help him. But I don't work for Central anymore, I say. I'm retired. As soon as you kill him, I'm going to take my grandson and leave. Birch walks backwards to where Ken sits, and without breaking eye contact, he kicks the chair over so Ken lands on his head and begins screaming. Pulling a switchblade out, Birch leans over Ken, forces the man's mouth open, and slices his tongue open, and cuts it out in pieces. Blood covers Birch's arm, and my stomach lurches to consider what he may do to me. If I leave him, Birch says, he'll bleed out. Ever see Million Dollar Baby? Clint Eastwood, I nod. Such a great director. He points his pistol back at me. How about hang him high? Yeah. Well, he says, then what reason do I have to keep you alive? You're the Antichrist. No, my father was, I say. Freudland took care of him. Birch turns the gun on Ken, who's moaning in the floor and blows a hole right into his forehead. I expected Birch to enjoy it more, but he approaches me as if I'm his main target and sticks the pistol in my neck.
I'll kill your grandson, he says. If you don't find the deepest hole in the ground and burrow, I intend to. Birch walks past me, back to the living room and outside. Looking at Ken's remains, I wonder who was born in his place. As each member of the Trinity passes, a newborn takes their place. I don't ever want to meet the next one, though. They're all self-centered and dangerous. Uh, Spoiler alert. Those of you who've read this book before, who is born in this moment? Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Jason Thorne. We'll meet him in 18 years. If Ken took his father's place, Veronica wouldn't be dead. Birch would still work for us, and Freudland wouldn't exist. Charles Price possessed some heart and sold his soul to protect his wife and future child, but Ken never understood what loyalty and love meant. Lucifer thinks all humans are diseased in their souls, though they possess potential. If he's right, they'll fall without his help. But Arthur helped us with Ken. If I alert him about Birch, he'll probably meet a similar fate to Ken. Because Arthur doesn't like the idea of being second best. Unlike Ken and Arthur, Birch loves someone. Nothing like a new woman to repair a broken heart. Once you settle somewhere, Lucifer appears. I'll return Alan to you. That's fair. I turn to him. Tell me, when was the last time you spoke to Lilith? Birch has a broken heart, and is going to destroy everything we've done. He needs a distraction. Of course, I'm sure all of you devoted readers out there remember in Price of the Trinity when Ken tries to meet with Murray at a bar. And Ken intends to kill Murray. And of course, Lilla shows up. Well, today, I, this week, my, uh, let me get my words out, okay? Fuck you. Calm down. It's okay. My wife has been on a Pink Floyd kick lately. Um, when we first met, she was not into classic rock whatsoever. But lately, she's been into Floyd. So... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we listened to Dark Side of the Moon for the first time together. And then, you know, I played her uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, um, or Wish You Were Here, whatever the album's called. Uh, and last weekend, we listened to the first half of The Wall. And I really, really wanted her to listen to the second half. And so I picked the best songs out because, let's face it, the the wall is a fantastic album but there are times when it's like just get to the point dude so uh, i did not realize how influential that album was on this book and i have i was dating this girl I talked about her in previous episodes for 8 years and she got really into the wall so, of course, I listened to The Wall by proxy, even though I was a big Pink Floyd fan in junior high and high school, whatever. 
But, you know, it took me a while to kind of get into the wall as an, as an album as a whole. And that album is dark. And as I get older, I just, I realize how even more dark it is than I initially thought. And I was explaining to my wife about how, you know, Roger Waters father died in world war two. And without that Pink Floyd probably wouldn't exist just like without September the 11th, there probably wouldn't be a Mike Hem. You know, these traumatic events in history influencing generations to come. So the wall, it, it itself being a symbol of, it, from my interpretation of Roger Waters' isolation and alienation from the world. And there are times when I listen to it and I tear up a bit. It's not just memories. It's like that feeling I had when I was listening to it a lot in 2015. I was just ate up with the depression, you know? And I was writing this book and Price, going back and forth on those. And, you know, there's a lot of darkness in these books, but it comes from a real place. And uh, another big influence would, of course, be Genesis. Huge influence on these books, particularly... Phil Collins era, Genesis with Duke, Trick of the Tale. I love Peter Gabriel era too. Uh, Supper's Ready is one of my favorite tracks ever. Anyway, this is Arthur's chapter, by the way. And as I've said previously, I'm not going to do all the accents while I'm reading the paragraphs, uh, but I will for the dialogue. The man who will end my life walks into the dark as the door shuts behind him. After tossing his wallet and keys on the desk, he turns to me in the shadows. Hiding in someone's hotel room is a good way to get shot, yet he's studying me rather than drawing the gun in his jeans. I'm not his enemy, but that doesn't mean he won't see me as one. Birch, I say. He nods. My name is Arthur Lindsay. I wanted to meet the only person capable of killing me. Birch sits on the bed across from me and pulls a pistol out. And I expect him to aim it at me and start asking questions. Instead, he tosses it into my lap. That confidence makes my toes curl into my feet and my ass clamp tight. I've never met an armed man who didn't want to kill me or run away. And when Birch crosses his arms, I think this is when I talk. Because he doesn't want to sit in the dark all night and listen to this old asshole. I got a call from Murray Groan, I say. See, he once hired me to take out Ken Price. Since then, I wondered who the figurehead was. You might say I obsessed over who you were. Maybe Murray didn't know when he gave me all that money, but he knew about you for a while, right? Not even a nod. Birch isn't here to answer questions, and I shouldn't be the one asking them. Might as well keep talking until he says something. I know Grown works for Satan, I say. They run Central Network. With 
Walter Grone dead and Murray on the run, I'm here to shut down what they started. It's not like I give a shit about other people, but you know. I don't want Satan to take over the world or anything. Fonda is about to launch a satellite that'll end Central's internet monopoly, Birch says. But that leaves the television network. Birch explains that with Fonda's satellite Wi-Fi, no one will pay for the internet ever again. But Central Network still owns the largest television outlet. Even though the internet is a big deal, TV is where people get news, entertainment, and background noise for their daily routines. So Birch wants to destroy the Central Network television station in the middle of downtown Atlanta. We need to get on top of the building, he says. I can pilot a helicopter, I say. I was in the military. Maybe you heard. People are going to start evacuating, though, Birch says. The police are going to meet us about halfway through the building. So what are we doing, I ask? Planting explosives or shooting all the news anchors? We're going to torch the top floor, Birch says, where all the actual broadcast equipment is. We'll knock out the satellites on the roof, pour gasoline on the servers, and it's going to be a slow domino effect. The roof's going to cave and each floor will follow. The corporate offices are next, Birch says. Smash the hard drives, light up all the file cabinets, and take out anyone you can on that floor. You can destroy all the physical and digital information, but you can't erase what they know. What's left after that? I ask. Seems like it'd be easy to bomb the place. The rest of the building isn't important, he says. But the police aren't going to let us leave. With a bunch of dead cops decorating the place, the roof caving in, and all the valuable information gone, Central Network won't ever recover. When do we start? There's a helicopter at Emory. Birch stands up and takes the gun from my lap. We need gasoline, assault rifles, and ammo. Tonight? Okay, so uh, Birch is very young. And despite the fact that he's invincible, he's not a genius. Okay, this plan is not a good plan at all. Um... In fact, Arthur's plan to bomb the place is better than what he's planning here. But uh, we'll see how it pans out. Birch insists I stay in his Mercedes while he goes into the arm store, which I might find offensive if I didn't look in the mirror now and then. While Birch is only a few centimeters a hair away from looking like a Columbine love child, I'm more akin to Jack Nicholson butt-fucking Charles Manson. And when Birch returns with two large black cases and I see CMPX on the side, I know why someone like me wouldn't look good buying two submachine guns. He buys the gas cans and won't let me fill one of them, which would be more efficient than just one guy. Birch tells me to keep my face down, too. Guess he's paranoid about cameras. Parking in the deck next to Emery, Birch turns to me and explains that we'll need an employee badge to get access to the roof. We don't want to cause a panic before we even get into the chopper. 
So Birch goes inside. I wait a few minutes and notice a pattern. He's smart, but Birch really doesn't want any association with me. I was a soldier. I know how to be covert. Though I look like I have some rough mileage, I am still invincible. Instead of sitting on my ass, I take my new gun and the gas cans inside. Then I realize why Birch wanted me to wait in the car because two nurses see me strolling through the hall and start yelling, Code Silver! Uh, that was the code from when I worked in the hospital. I worked in uh, a local hospital for a little over two months. Uh, not as a nurse, though. Um, not as a janitor, either. I worked in the kitchen. And I was the feller who would take patient orders and deliver their food. Um, this was back in 2017. Yeah. Or was it? Yeah. Because I met my wife in 2016. And we got married in 2017. I worked at the hospital for a little over two months. And then I started working in the current field I'm in now. Been six years. What the fuck? Birch turns to, turns me around to face him. He shows me an ID badge and pulls me along as we enter a stairwell, and the intercom system starts blaring, This is a code page, code silver. And then the ID badge isn't unlocking the door to the top level, which is when Birch looks as if he wants to haul me down the stairs until I break my neck. We're lucky if the Air Force doesn't shoot us down before we reach Central. Birch says. Why the hell do you keep shitting on me? I ask. I'm a great fucking pilot. Shooting the glass window of the door out, I reach on the other side and open it. My smile probably looks more like a grimace to Birch. He's about surgical cleanliness and I'm the disease. The helicopter's in the air before we see any guards on the hospital roof. Central Network is only five miles away. Jesus Christ. How? Let me see something. Let's get on the internet together, people. You're listening to this on the internet. I have Google Earth on my phone because I'm a nerd. But I want to see, first of all, because Central Network is kind of CNN in Atlanta. So let's go to CNN Atlanta. Um, why wouldn't you just fucking tell me where it is, you piece of shit? Okay, so CNN Atlanta is here. It's right here. You see where I'm pointing at? Yeah, it's right there. Now, I want to, it's near the Mercedes Stadium. Okay. Now look at, where's Emory? Emory, don't come sue me. Um, Emory Hospital. And, well, there's a few of them. Shit. There's one in Midtown. It's not five miles away. <laughs> it's definitely not three. Oh, my God. Um, see, this is why I write fiction. Uh, let's say it's at the other Emory. Yeah, the other Emory, Patrick. Great fucking writing there. Listen, I'm a man of convenience... And it's, for some reason when I wrote this, it was more convenient for me to have it five miles away for some reason. But I don't really know why. We'll see, I guess. 
Central Network is only five miles away, so I'm betting we'll make it, but they might evacuate the building before we land, as if they'd know that you were coming, Arthur. But there's plenty about Birch's plan that I don't like. He wants to land, start a fire, and kill cops. He doesn't understand chaos. In his mind, there's no point in destroying the building because it's the intel that counts. Why not both, though? Por que no los dos? <laughs> He's afraid to look down at his hands and see red. Birch doesn't want to hurt innocent bystanders, which is why his plan isn't to crash the helicopter into the side of the building and let the pandemonium ensue. I'm the pilot, and I want to see how far he'll go to massacre Central Network in the name of God. Ever had your whole body set on fire? I ask. Birch doesn't acknowledge anything I say, but I'm sure he more than glances over when I jump out of the chopper. I know that I won't die if I hit the ground, but I didn't plan further than letting the helicopter collide into the building. So, I land on the low ledge on this skyscraper as an aircraft crashes above me and the structure rattles underneath me. An explosion causes my hearing to shut down as if I'm on a battlefield, and I cover my eyes as I lie on my back with a cig under my ass. I'm sure the gasoline we brought didn't help, but Birch is going to survive. A real battle isn't following a plan, but having the worst scenario thrown on top of you and digging your way toward the surface. Man, that is a way of saying I, Jesus that is some kind of metaphor it's like uh, don't ask permission ask forgiveness later I look over the ledge to see that I'm still many stories above the ground people are out of their cars pointing and taking pictures some scream and run away imagine if the military was akin to celebrities and paparazzi showed up to a strike against the Middle East the journalist with the least integrity harassing our boys in uniform. Well, I'm not a fan of cameras, and casualties are an unavoidable circumstance. You know, the way with my hair thinning, if they ever do make a Netflix series or a, a, a movie out of this book, I could probably pay, play Arthur by the time they get around to it. The civilians scatter as I shower my bullets down, looking up. I see the buildings in flames. People are screaming inside and sirens encircle Atlanta. My gun turns to the central network employees and glass falls around me like rain as the tower thunders. But Birch's plan was to meet the police. What if all those people were stuck inside and the police couldn't get in though? Falling to the surface, I lift myself from the broken pavement and greet the first officers on the scene. Gentlemen, I announce, anyone who crosses this threshold to enter will die. Those who try to exit will meet the same fate. They're not having it. Four officers run with their kneecappers drawn. So I let the SIG launch in a furry a fury. <laughs> no furries in this book. Killing was fun in Korea, and I fought to protect this nation, yet I'm not feeling so much love in return for my duties. The irony is that the American government trained me to take out anyone, not just Asians. 
as the few officers who didn't have the balls to die hide behind their vehicles with their piss shooters, the SWAT team pulls in. And a news helicopter appears as the bulletproof posers extend their automatic rifles and fire at the crazed gunman. Their bullets can't stop me, I say. Why do you think yours will? Running into the circle of men, I let the, my trigger finger remain stagnant against the warm metal that heats up as the SIG releases upon them. When Central Network falls, the other news channels report on invincible soldiers that attack the most corrupt media organization tonight. And the world will know the Trinity rises against the devil's domineering hand. An ocean of blood rises under my feet as I stand as the only living soldier amongst the dead police force. Of course, more will come and Birch will deal with them, but this is my window to leave. I'm a rogue agent and I hold no loyalty to a man who will probably shoot me for what I just did. Red footprints wash out eventually as I'm a block away and I abandon my weapon in the street. Adrenaline lifts you differently when you're attacking versus fleeing. In dreams, you don't always know what you're running from, but your instinct tells you to keep moving. A black van screeches past me, breaking three feet away from me, and I almost collide with the dark steel until the door opens. Arthur, a black man reaches for me. It's Benedict, my old friend. Before I get a chance to let my heart calm and all the reminiscing to begin, another man wraps a leather belt around my neck and a needle hits my ass before the fog enters the vehicle as it pushes forward. All right, plot hole time. Um, that needle doesn't penetrate Arthur. He says that it hits his ass. He doesn't say that it's the reason why he starts feeling foggy. The reason he, he, he started to feel foggy is probably because of the belt tied around his neck. So uh, it's even addressed in his chapter because a nurse tries to draw his blood in a flashback scene and she can't do it. Anyway, uh, also Benedict. We get to see Benedict again. Uh, Benedict, I think I already said this, but Benedict had his own chapter in an earlier draft. Um, but I didn't think I developed him very well. So I, I made him, I kept him as a minor character. <clears throat> Let's just get into Birch's. My throat after reading that chapter, it wasn't very long, but damn. I might just have to start reading all this like this. You're through. A man walks in the fire, his skin deflecting the flames. Reaching down to me, I rise to meet a goateed man who reflects the light and heat as if his face is red. Smoke surrounds us and engulfs me, and as it clears, the night air cools me. It's almost poetic. Standing on the building opposite Central Network, I watch as Arthur Lindsay murders police and runs away from his mess. I should have gotten to know him before getting in a helicopter he piloted, but I figured why not destroy Satan's last pawn in the game against Freudland. I plotted this for centuries. 
The man stands beside me. What did Freudlin pay you? Nothing, I say. I'm buying my peace of mind. And you think I won't haunt you forever. Never thought I'd meet Satan. He's not a flying demon with pig feet and horns. It's as though any man from the street is next to me. He's also saved me the trouble Arthur got himself into. In a perverse way, Arthur bailing out worked. And I haven't thought about what I'll do after this. Taking out Price and Central Network where my journeys climax and I intend to return home. Yet I sense that Atlanta traps me into a war I didn't intend to fight. Freudlin is a victor. And Satan looks on as his corporation dissolves before us. That's what Birch thinks. Yeah. You might even say that what happens in this chapter works in Satan's favor as well. Let's find out. This war. Your war already haunts me, I say. I'm done. Someone with your power doesn't walk away after a single strike, Satan proclaims. It's your human nature that'll pull you back in as you crave more. If you make any moves, I turn to Satan. I'll return. Leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. I'll wait you out, Birch, he says. You'll get older. Another figurehead will rise. They'll be doing me a favor. Alone on this rooftop, I gaze at my results. I never questioned my capabilities. As I consider who I was before I met Veronica versus the man standing in my shoes, the scenarios around me changed and I reacted. I'm still the child who killed his father and tried to drown in a South Carolina river, but my potential for violence escalated, and if I shut myself from this dramatic existence, I'll never have to hurt anyone again. At least five different cameras caught my face before I crashed a helicopter into a building so I can forget getting in my Mercedes at Emory and driving back to Pennsylvania. Even going back to the Four Seasons might turn a few heads. But I have to change my appearance and get out of Atlanta. Pity the devil couldn't teleport me. Landing in the street. All the attention lies on the central network disaster, so I'm able to walk a while and hail a taxi. Are people able to hail taxis in Atlanta? I've never seen it happen. Now there's Ubers everywhere, but this is before Uber was effervescent, if that's the right word. Despite my, maybe pervasive would be a better word. You know, I, I have a master's degree in English. Despite my situation... <laughs> My gun is at the Four Seasons. The Mercedes has my license plate and registration, and I smell like a bonfire. The driver doesn't notice my burnt clothes from any other stranger in Atlanta, I suppose. Paying the driver to wait outside a Walmart, I hand him a 20 for his baseball cap and head into head in with my head down. First, I find an electric razor, 
wandered to the jewelry section for some sunglasses, grab some black Wranglers and a camo pullover and head for the rear bathroom. Locking the door, I used my switchblade to cut open the razor box before plugging it into the outlet next to the sink. Cramming paper towels into the bowl, I lean over and begin cutting my hair off. In three minutes, I'm a skinhead, and I dispose of the remnants in my clothes. By the way, as someone who shaves his head on a regular basis, um, I can't ever think of a time where I was able to get it perfect from just shaving it with an electric razor. I have to go over it with a, a regular razor and some cream just to get it, you know, even and everything. But he's not looking for perfection here. He's just trying to change his appearance. Every Walmart has an employees-only door that leads to the stockroom, rear offices, and break area right next to the bathrooms. Right at the time clock, emergency exits allow for a quick way out, and it's late, and the employees are generally apathetic and spread out enough. Okay, so one of the reasons why I was able to know all this, not that it's not common knowledge, but I actually worked at Walmart for a month in 2016. It was my first job when I finished undergrad, and um, I was able to walk in at night, and this is when I resigned, if you can call it resigning, and I was able to walk into the back where all the offices and merchandise are, no one stopped me. No one checked to see why I was there. There was no one back there at all. So anyone could have walked back there. And I left my badge and the blue vest and my resignation letter and was able to walk out. No hassle. I literally just watched a TikTok video about how the CEO of Walmart is pissed off because they've lost $3 billion. This is a, a, a company that makes $156 billion a year. He's upset because they're losing $3 billion in theft every year. And he's blaming self-checkouts, even though uh, the self-checkout thing was their way of not losing more money by by not hiring more people to work because if they actually had an adequate staff to check everyone out, I guess that would cost more than having ro robots or forcing people to check. I hate self-checkout, by the way. The only time it's convenient is when you have like two things. The cab driver throws the cap in the front seat as he turns around and drives us toward the Four Seasons. This time, he demands the fare and drives away before I'm in the hotel. No one in the lobby gives me any attention. Though I'm self-conscious and wondering if someone's seeing this guy in cheap clothes who doesn't belong, I leave the Walmart attire on the bed when I gather my things, stuffing the Sig Sour in my overnight bag. Instead of waiting on an attendant downstairs, I leave the car key and my signature on the bill they slid under the door. It's only a 14-minute walk to Emory, so I forego another taxi and step outside. Tonight, I am a terrorist, a mass murderer. There is no legal redemption. If someone finds out who I am, I'm fucked for life. I can't rely on Freudland to protect me because he'll 
give me away to the authorities when I'm no longer of use. The government isn't going to understand a religious war. And the hospital is on lockdown. Police cars sit at the entrance of the parking garage and there's no getting in on the first floor. But there's another deck on the opposite end of the street that doesn't connect to the main building. Of course, I can't jump across, but I've watched enough action movies to try something stupid. Finding a car with enough torque and body strength to get through a concrete wall and across the street seems like a great way to have cops on my ass before I get to the Mercedes. All of my schemes are going to get me deeper in the shit. Listen, why doesn't he just steal a car? I I, I don't... <laughs> I know why I wrote it this way, but at the same time, I it's been a few years since I wrote it. So now I'm reading this as someone who has a little bit of separation and wondering why the fuck... He's murdered people. Why doesn't he just steal a car? What am I hearing right now? It sounds like an ice cream truck outside. That's creepy. Do you hear that? I think it's my wife's cell phone. Anyway, this is great podcasting, by the way. Oh, God. I could edit all this out, but, you know, we have fun together, don't we? You you like my zaniness, don't you? That's why you listen. Not because you like to hear me read. All right. I'm a master thief, but not a genius. Really, I don't need the car so much as a way to destroy the evidence. And it shouldn't take more than a few minutes. If Oh, this, this makes more sense. If I can escape armed men opening fire at me as I jumped out of a 16-story window with a hard drive, then I can get around a couple of police officers. As I approach the entry, they warn me to step away, and one of them draws his gun. I'm not bulky enough to push them down, and certainly not fast enough to run around them. This is a matter of my freedom, and my hands are already drenched in innocent blood. This is the one time I distinctly remember Birch being direct, because we can actually blame the helicopter crashing into the building on Arthur, right? This is the one time I can think of in early on in the Birch timeline, of course, where he's murdering innocent people. Once they're down, I book it to the stairwell. My mind focuses on the matter of destroying that damn car. So my blood pressure doesn't rise. Adrenaline can blind you and your heart demolishes your will. I take aim at the gas tank fire several rounds, and the explosion turns the car into shrapnel that damage all the surrounding vehicles, sounding their alarms, but that can't drown out the sirens approaching below. By the way, uh, there was an episode of Mythbusters, before I even wrote wrote this part, I knew about this. We're relying on movie magic here, people. Uh, if you shoot a gas tank, it's most likely not going to start a fire. Either I go into the hospital and hope to find a way out, or I leave through an opening and fall into havoc. Heart hospitals aren't places to hide. The mistake all the horror chicks make when running from a monster is hiding somewhere they can escape, like a closet or under a bed. Going out the back door is always the best alternative. 
but I don't have to go on foot because I planned to hotwire a car not even a minute ago. I, I was always looking for interesting ways to say something in a book. My God. Um, again, not saying it's bad writing, but it's not something that I would do now. I would probably just say, I'm going to go hotwire a car. I find a bulky Cadillac Escalade, but an expensive car is something the owner will miss. People shouldn't steal flashy cars unless they intend to sell their parts. But a black frown... Whoa, a black Ford Crown Royal blends in and even wards other drivers away because they'll think I'm a sheriff. So I should shoot the window open. That's not going to get anyone's attention. Clear the glass from the seat. Breach the ignition panel and start rearranging the open wires. Keeping the lights off, I screech through the parking deck and plow through the parked police vehicles of the men I shot only moments ago. And with the night's perpetual shadow, <laughs> I continue through downtown without a second glance and enter I-85. I have to read that part again in like a, a sexier voice. And with the night's perpetual shadow, I continue through downtown without a second glance. Once you make it to the freeway, it's over. Cops don't look for stolen vehicles. They pull people over and check their plates and registration, but they're not on the prowl for your Volkswagen or Nissan. I only need a few hours, and I'll abandon this one for another. I haven't eaten in days, though. Pride running through my blood can only stifle my hunger for so long. Apparently, I'm hungry, too, because I have a speech impediment all of a sudden. So I pull off an exit in Asheville, a motel and a full stomach might make the road home easier with my mind off Veronica. The violence certainly did. The Asheville Inn is only $60 and a better cover than the Four Seasons. There's a Cracker Barrel across the street, so hopefully I can find a liquor store in walking distance. Is this based on a real place? I don't remember... Reading Bukowski taught me that if you drink enough, your memory stop lingering around your neck like a noose. After a plateful of starches, I find an ABC and leave with a brown sack of Maker's Mark. Uh, do they have ABCs in Asheville? I know they do in Virginia, but... And a pair of legs with a white dress and, ha- and red hair counters me in the sidewalk. She fills out that cotton sexier than a vodka martini cupped in my hand during a James Bond marathon. Even when I'd rather drown in alcohol, my eyes find a distraction. Sir? She stops beside me. You're not drinking all that by yourself. I wasn't planning on sharing, I say. Is that how you treat a guest, Birch? My stomach drops to my feet, and I'm simultaneously wondering who she works for and how I can break this bottle over her head. And as she wraps an arm around my waist and starts guiding me back towards the motel, I know I should listen to her before committing a crime and leaving a large blot in my trail back to Philly. And with all the supernatural bullshit going on around me, perhaps she's an angel or demon, I... 
just want to be alone and get back home, and it was a mistake stopping in Asheville. Before you decide to hack me into pieces, the redhead closes the door behind us, I work for Harley Freudland, not as a Fonda employee. I'm sure Freudland sent her to seduce me into doing something for him. How she found me interests me more, though. But before I pull out my gun and tie her up, I'll ask her like a normal person. Uh, By the way, if you haven't pieced it together, this is Lilith. Um, If you want to know who the inspiration was for this incarnation of Lilith, because remember, she looks different to everyone. Um... She was, and again, do not sue me, people, okay? Uh, There's nothing in this book. Uh, I just know that Scarlett Johansson, and it's not Scarlett Johansson. I don't find her attractive. I just know that Scarlett Johansson sued some guy who wrote a book, and apparently it was her likeness or something. I don't know how you do that, but... um, this, this, in my mind, when I wrote this version of Lilith, I was thinking of Christina Hendricks and Mad Men. Anyway, now you know. I bet my friend Chris is creaming in his panties right now thinking about that, because I am. Um, by the way, my wife and I were talking about starting to watch Mad Men because I watched it Ooh, back in 2014 or so, I watched like the first four episodes and I didn't really like it, but now I'm older and more mature. Maybe I'll dig it and I'll definitely just watch it for her. Uh, where was I? I was busy talking about Christina Hendricks and my God, she's a distraction. Uh, let's see. But before I, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, she, (laughs) it's amazing what my perverted mind will leap to. Uh, Well, she says, God sent me to help you. So, do you work for Freudland or God, I ask. Freudland works for God, she says. I work for Freudland. All right, I say. So you can drive back to Atlanta. This bottle can wait. With her blue eyes glowing above her cleavage, this succubus think she'll woo me into submission or something. And if Freudland doesn't know how to leave me be, then I'll send the message through her. This kind of has a noir feel to it. You don't know what we want yet, she says. Pulling my sig sour from my jeans, I point the gun toward the ceiling so she'll get the hint. I'm going to leave for Philly and she can either die in this room or return to Atlanta. Before Veronica died, I avoided hurting other people. I never returned fire if someone shot at me because I could take the bullets. But now, I'm considering finding a cabin in Canada to hide in, and it won't matter how many bodies I leave behind. I'm leaving. Ripley, she says. Freudlin wants you to find out what she knows. And then kill her. She means Caroline. Though we never met, I knew Caroline through our work with Central Network and Fonda. I obviously didn't work directly for Freudland, but with her Ripley alias, Caroline thought of herself as a double agent who took jobs from whoever paid. But 
She's only as dangerous as her fingerprint as her fingertips on a keyboard because she's a five foot tall half Chinese girl living in a one room apartment in Midtown Atlanta. That was a very specific description of a real person, by the way, as I've stated before. Uh, this girl that I dated in early 2015 is the inspiration for Ripley slash Caroline and also Allison Price. Uh, because I am a bitter bitchy boy. <laughs> I'm not into cold-blooded murder, though, if Freudland wants to sever ties with me afterward. I would easily assassinate the bitch. She's not my favorite person, and life isn't a gift. But what can he do to protect me from the law when he let Price go to jail? If you put the gun away, the redhead says... I'll tell you where to find her right now. Can it wait until tomorrow morning, I ask? She won't be on a train in the morning. Caroline's leaving Atlanta for New York, hoping to blend in a new city and escape Freudland. While Murray Groan would have bloodied her face by now, Central Network is effectively irrelevant. Fonda launches its satellite in two days, and Caroline apparently knows too much and is a risk because of her disloyalty. And I can't buy a ticket at a station and wait for the train to stop because it's a one-way trip with a full load from Atlanta. That means I have to hop the damn thing and hope no one notices when I murder a five-foot half-Chinese girl. When you combine her tattoos and septum piercing, this chick isn't Waldo in a crowd. Um, if I were to write this now, I'd probably just say she was Chinese, not half Chinese. Uh, with the coordinates of the train and its route, the redhead drives me ahead in her 2005 gray Mustang. Is there a reason why I haven't said the name Lilith yet? Uh, we'll see. I guess she expects me to step in front of the train and climb on the engine. No, I actually need her to drive this ugly car alongside the passenger cab, and I'm going to pull a Tom Cruise and jump from the Mustang's roof. Even if you can't die, the redhead parks in the grass next to the track. It seems stupid to do that. Listen, I say, I do a lot of stupid things. Instead of drinking that whiskey until I passed out, I'm in here with you in your inappropriate dress about to hop on a train like a hobo. Well, you'll get to see less of the dress. Shut up. As the train begins to pass, I climb onto the roof and hold onto the travel rack, which is a black fiberglass bar, and the poor man's bond girl hits the gas to keep up, jolting me on my right side. This... Wasn't a brilliant idea, but I'm still hanging on. The incline along the tracks doesn't allow for a safe jump yet, so I'm trying to time myself and measure where I'll land as the car keeps moving up and down. I won't die if I miss and fall, but it'll hurt. Chasing a train and trying to hop aboard over and over sounds like a Benny Hill routine. I'm not much for comedy these days. So... The redhead's pacing alongside, keeping the Mustang ahead of the small space between the passenger cars. And I'm finally close enough 
to go in for it, but I'm freezing. When I was a boy, if I wanted something I didn't want to ask my parents, I'd go up to them and not speak at first, because once the words came out, I couldn't take them back. Even if I wanted a Coke, I hesitated. The question would sit in my chest, and they'd look at me expectantly. Yet I'd often walk away instead of getting what I wanted. I know what I'm about to do, and I'm an idiot to try. But my hands let go, and my legs push against the hood. My eyes close, though I should look at where I'm going, and my arms reach out. For a moment, I feel my feet move forward without anywhere to stand, and I open my eyes to see I'm right at the gap, but I'm not going to land. My left arm grabs at the support rail on the side, and my socket wants to explode when my body slams against the passenger car, and I'm dangling on the side with one hand. Pulling myself up, I sit on the, on the short platform and breathe as my arms shake and moan with pain. I'm not a secret agent. This was not well thought out. Yet, I'm standing and entering the cart where Caroline resides, and I'm going to kill her on a moving train, all because I want to be left alone. Uh, when it, I re- read the <laughs> the word resides, I couldn't help but hear uh, the line from Schitt's Creek. The town where I currently reside. Sitting in her own compartment, Caroline leans over a custom-made clear acrylic laptop, probably running Linux. She looks up like a pig caught running in the garbage. I kick the door shut behind me place the Sig Sauer to her temple, and toss the computer to the floor. It's really a good thing that I didn't date many girls before I met my wife, because good lord. What is it with you girls and alien? I place my hand on her throat. Ripley? She's expecting me to defile her first, then cut off her nipples and toss her carcass out the window. But I'm interested in what she knows about Fonda and Central Network that I don't. I'm sure she has something to say before I blow a bullet through her temple and catch it with my mouth. I'm Birch, I say. Harley Froydland wants me to redecorate this train with your insides. Birch? She breathes. I I know who you are. I know you don't kill people. I click the hammer on the six hour. Why does Freudland want me dead? She asks. He's the one who bought me the train pass. It's an odd way to stabilize a target, I say, but makes it hard for you to escape and gives me an easy getaway. She could be full of shit, but I find people tell more truth than lies when they're facing their demise. Lies require thinking and contemplation, which is time wasted when a gun's against your head. But I didn't get an order from Freudland. It was from his pussy galore stand-in. Why are you going to New York? I ask. Fonda, 
Caroline says. Freudland wants me to oversee the satellite transition there. Central Network still has operating servers. And if you don't show up, I ask, Central won't lose their subscribers overnight. So, I put my gun down. I guess Freudland wouldn't want you dead. Lucifer sent this red-headed siren to help him make a last stand against Freudland. I'm su- I suppose it wouldn't end with Caroline either. He probably wanted me to fall in love or something, then do his bidding through the whore of Babylon. See, Birch is almost there. He's almost made it there. Almost. But not quite. <laughs> because he still falls into the trap. And that's the thing about this book. This book ends with the bad guy winning, even though the bad guy allegedly dies, you know? So, everything that happens, because Lucifer's plan has a backup plan, and a backup plan, and a backup plan. He has loaded the dice. He has a trick deck. He has smoke and mirrors. He's planned out everything here. So even if something goes wrong, the other plan will work out. And even if the plan halfway fails, it still works in his favor. I'm sorry, I say. I've just been through hell lately. Rolling to the ground, I'm stranded somewhere near Virginia. Even if Lucifer didn't lead me on through lust, he dangled what I want in front of me. He wasn't lying about haunting me. What can I do to stop evil from following me, though? See, Birch seems logical, doesn't he? He seems like he realizes, okay, Lilith equals bad. And yet, Lilith is so persuasive that he can't say no to her. And the Mustang pulls through the trees and parks in front of me. The redhead rolls down the window, her heart-shaped sunglasses protecting me from those warm blue irises. And she beckons me with a wave. I'm going to shoot her pretty face off, then await Lucifer's arrival. Out. I open her door and pull the vixen to the ground. Tossing the car keys across the train tracks, I aim the Sig Sauer on my true enemy. She's the messenger. But I was about to murder Caroline for something that didn't affect me. So now I'm embracing the evil for the sake of invoking it. Birch, don't! She screams. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Smoke surrounds us. As I bend over, choking on flames, Lilith clamors through the grass and I fire, but the bullet sticks into the ground instead. Someone pushes me, though I catch myself before falling and turn to see Lucifer in the gray mist around us. Ignorant, he bellows. You're the definitive fool. As flames spark in the grass around me, I let them lick at my skin as I return Lucifer's glare. He thinks I'll run away in peril or allow his distractions to save the woman from my gun. But I'm audacious enough to fire at him. And I'm more shocked when the light disappears, smoke evaporates, and Lucifer holds his hand over his chest. 
my shot actually hit him. And I wasn't expecting such an outcome. He's the biblical definition of evil. Yet I'm standing over Lucifer as if he's a wounded soldier without a weapon. God damn the Trinity, he spits. I fire again at his head. Again, not expecting to kill him. But he lies there with a hole in his head. No blood. He should be rising from the ground in a volcano blast of flames, yet he stays there. Lucifer can't be dead, though. He's the eternal lord of evil. Surely, as a figurehead, I'm not powerful enough to end his life. Birch, the redhead stammers. What? He's gone. You shot Lucifer. Guilt swallows me, as if I committed the ultimate sin. This creature, dead under my feet, lived for centuries, only to meet his demise at my hand. And I'm I'm as significant to the universe as a bird's white shit stain on an 18-wheeler. Yet I'm shaking with regret, and nausea grabs my insides. Please, God. She's on her knees praying to the sky. I renounce Lucifer and give myself back to you. Who are you? I keep my eyes on Lucifer, expecting him to revive himself. Lilith, she says. Harlot of hell, first wife of Adam. Grasping at my legs, Lilith's face turns from a smooth, pale vessel of lust into a decaying, breathing corpse as her skin peels and her teeth grow jagged and sharp. Beneath the most beautiful woman I ever saw is charcoal skin that begins to look like scales on a snake. Seeing this creature decompose shakes me to my soul. Obviously, this is an act from Lilith, although it may not be obvious to you. Um, We have Lucifer, who is putting on an act, being dramatic. God damn, the Trinity. He is doing this because he needs to protect Alan for one thing. So if Birch is led to believe that Alan is a threat and Lucifer's plan is ongoing, then he's going to want to end everything so he can have peace of mind. Plus, Lucifer can't really chance Birch being able to undo everything because Birch is the figurehead. So it's not like Lucifer can hire someone to kill him anytime soon. The flip side of this is that Birch is also creating a back door for Lucifer to return later on, as we'll see. I'm yours for eternity. If you accept me as your own, please spare me. And if I don't, my soul will melt through this earth and enter hell for eternity. Then stop. I accept you, Lilith. The ground begins to pulse beneath us. Lilith, Lilith ooh, takes my hand and her beauty returns as Lucifer's corpse turns to dust and a red light forms where he died, consuming us. 
the bright stream shoots through me and I feel my muscles stop shaking as they seem to reset as if I rested for ages. My focus heightens, smell quickens, and ears open. And as if obtaining knowledge of the world in a single moment, I understand that I performed God's right through extinguishing Lucifer. Therefore, I possess Satan's power, a feeling I never knew before, as an invincible weakling. I see it in you, Lilith exclaims. You're more than the figurehead now. What's more powerful than the figurehead? You're the last of the Trinity, she says. It ends with you. All right, we're going to get into Lilith's chapter, which is not very long, and then next week we will start part two, which begins with Murray Groan's next chapter. All right. This is a flashback chapter, by the way. Washing his face in the river, Adam looked away from the water, yet avoided eye contact with me. When I tried to embrace him from behind, he rebuked my offer and pushed me aside as he wandered back to the shade and kept walking into the utopia I knew as Eden. I never heard God's voice. Adam heard the Lord's messages and relayed them to me, and we spent our morning amongst the wildlife that doted on us for leadership. The first time I met another being was when I looked across that river and saw a man far more beautiful than Adam. His wings extended like a black butterfly, a goatee trimmed thin around his mouth. The handsome man beckoned to me. He told me I was no longer welcome in Eden, and God granted me to him as a slave for eternity for violating Adam. God constructed me to appeal to Adam's lust for procreation. My role was childbearer, but my power exceeded Eve. Each man who would know me saw his ideal woman in me. I have yet to know my true form because I am different to all who see me. Yet my identity rests between my legs and I only know sexuality as my existence. And I admit embarrassment for my actions in the past few hours. I'm used to men succumbing to my sexual whims and doing Lucifer's bidding. They use my body like a drug. And since God designed me as such, no other woman feels, smells, sounds, or looks as good as I do. When the men clamor for more, Lucifer used them until they lost their purpose to him. I'm not usually the one begging or decaying through my lust for life. I expected Birch to follow me into his motel room with that whiskey bottle and not come out for days. Lucifer wanted him to hit Ripley because she was a liability with so much information about each major internet provider, but it wasn't as urgent as I made it seem. Freudland doesn't know I exist, after all. No man ever put a gun to my head like Birch, and he was the first to not immediately want to fuck me. When he gained Lucifer's satanic power, I understood why. He's God's tool to save this damned planet. 
and I want to be by his side instead of burning in hell. Birch will bring me redemption. This war is settled, Birch says. I'm dangerous to its pause. I've never had this power before. What do you want to do with it? I ask. You're capable of anything. Freudlin is the mastermind. Birch drops down on the grass where Lucifer died. I wandered into all of this. Central Network's done. Fonda's going to take over. God won. Why do I feel like it's all unfinished? It's not your responsibility to finish anything. I lean down to him. He doesn't feel right because there's a major outlier in this plan. Alan Price, Lucifer's son. When that child grows, he'll possess Satan's abilities and bypass God's law because he's part human. Though God never allowed Lucifer to harm humans directly, the devil tricked man into doing his bidding for centuries. After Al Price's daughter, Allison, had Veronica, Lucifer finally had the perfect vessel for his seed. What I know, and the rest of these idiots don't, is that Walter Grone was never the Antichrist. Sure, he's Lucifer's creation, but he was the first humanoid Lucifer forged, and it led to Murray. Lucifer raised that man, taught him to hate mankind and how to inflict the worst pain, and meant for him to take over Central Network after Walter retired. It was all set up for Murray until Freudland appeared. And the shame about Murray is that he wanted the role, but spent so much time busting heads and bleeding people to death that Lucifer never saw, never directly told him about his power. Why? I theorize that Lucifer never saw the potential rise in Murray and impregnating a human was a great misstep. Why couldn't Murray destroy humanity with Alan? Maybe because Murray loves his grandson and regrets never raising Veronica. He possesses too much human in him to be the true Antichrist. But Lucifer doesn't just have a plan B. He has a whole rotten deck even if he loses a hand, he'll win the game somehow. With Birch, I see Lucifer's greatest failure. Inability to recognize God will always overpower him. There are still two living Trinity members, Birch says. Arthur's missing. The other one won't be self-aware enough for at least 13 years. See? I say. With Lucifer dead, you're free from all of this. For now. And Freudland, Birch looks into the trees. He's here for God, I say. Birch, I want you to take me home with you. Stop this contemplation and enjoy your freedom. Grabbing him by the jaw, I force my lips onto Birch. He doesn't kiss back, but his tongue... Soaking up my saliva is enough. He just needs a taste to settle down. And when he tries to get up, I push my red nails into his chest because he could disappear and go anywhere. But he's still here with me. Though Birch resists, he's with me.
Take me home, dear, I say. All right. I've had enough. You've probably had enough. It's been a long episode. Next week, we'll get back into it. Same bat time, same bat channel. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing.